for the second time Hannah Shergold back in the studio. This is there was meant to be originally meant to be like three or four episodes between our last one and this one. And all of the guests in between, just by chance, postponed. So this is going out Hannah Shergold. Is it something I said? <laughs> yeah, is it something you said? Yeah. Yeah. Um But I'm glad we're doing it again. Like I enjoyed the last one and I and I've been looking forward to this one because the last one I found, as you know, mm. like thinking back on it, a little bit uncomfortable, mm. which means it's challenging, mm. just challenging me. And that's why I was looking forward to this. Because yeah. it's challenging conversation and yeah. relining my thoughts. What, uh, you were worried after the last one, were you? I was, yeah. it's Because it's a really vulnerable position to put yourself in, to kind of voice a lot of these um, personal experiences and... But I, but I stand by what I said, and even not everyone is going to agree with me, and that's okay. Um, but I did come out of it thinking, with a huge dose of imposter syndrome, because I thought, well, you know, people are going to think I don't have the credentials to talk about that kind of thing, and and um, that I'm I'm not qualified to voice some of that. And and then I I have to spend a few days thinking, no, yes, I am, because. It was my experience. It doesn't have to be everyone else's experience, but it's more of a just a kind of a gentle warning to people that that's it does exist and that's, that's how it can go if it's if it's not checked. Yeah, it does exist, and I think where I, I, I text you a couple of days later because it kind of uh, it threw me right off with wondering if I was misremembering my own service mm. or my experiences of it mm. because my entire I think I can't remember if I mentioned it on the last one but my entire time on the server never I never experienced anything I don't remember any mm. any over sexism from male to female I don't remember it doesn't mean it didn't happen um but to your point you experienced it it did happen you know it's I, think case you of how... do, I think you do experience it you just don't necessarily until somebody points out the consequences of it you don't necessarily recognize it so for example you'd mentioned a website called fill your boots like you know what that is you know what kind of stuff gets posted on there it's like casual everyday sexism um are we thinking about two different things here okay go on but but the kind of thing that comes up on on that site like i don't even go on it because i find it so well, the Philly boots I'm talking about is the the social media. Yeah, the social account. media kind of yeah, but it's like full of memes and yep. you know, but th- that some of the some of that kind of stuff. If you take that and you put that into conversation, like you know, and I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole here, but um, it's that accepted norm of how we talk about certain groups, certain individuals, and. Um, yeah, I think it's different though. When you, t- I think it's different in the context of something like Philia Boots posting it. In that, it is uh, quite often in that, or not quite often, on occasion, when something like that has been posted, which is not politically correct, mm. but it's sexism or something else. Quite often, it's Alfie, the guy behind it, taking the mick mm. out of that behavior or thought pattern or process mm. or or. or Yes, it can, but it's, it, but yeah. the point is that not everybody then reads it like that, and it's just then that kind of attitude is then comes out in 
real ah, life like normalizing it yeah and so um i see your point it's laughed about you have to laugh along with it and also find it funny otherwise you don't fit in and I see um your point. Yeah, yeah. so i think it's there and i I, I come back to my point last time about education. If we don't tell people how, um, y you know, the, the longer term consequences of not uh, calling this kind of thing out, then how will people know? I was never about going back and and um, punishing people for what was accepted behaviour at that time. In fact, when I came to raise this stuff, I was absolutely adamant I would not name names not one, even when they said, um, we won't do anything about it unless you give us the names. I said, well, tough, I'm not doing it. And um, and, the, and the reason being why? Um, because they, they what, no, re the reason why, why I wouldn't. wouldn't. You, yeah, yeah. Because um, I didn't feel it was right. I didn't feel that it was um, the right thing to do to... I thought it was an easy way out for them to for the the chain of command to be able to to look back and my point wasn't about that in that person's individual behavior my point was about we had a culture of acceptance of poor behavior and that was a chain of command issue not an individual's issue and so what was the point of calling out that individual the point was we had to look forward change the change the um, and I'm talking about within the Air Corps here. I'm not talking about. Uh, I just wanted to focus on on behaviours that I'd seen in a in a unit that was very um, low ratio of women, um, and had seen some pretty appalling behaviours, not just to me but to other um, uh, females in the unit. But I, I, it wasn't about going back and and. Um, punishing those individuals for a behavior that culturally we had said you know passively we accept this my point was we we um acknowledge it we look at what had gone wrong we reset what is our acceptable behavior level of behavior and then if anyone and educate and then if anyone from that point on um, breaks those rules, then you can punish them because they've been told. And um, but because yeah, I, I found it very difficult to um, to get anywhere unless I unless I named and shamed people, and I wouldn't do it. Mm. So it's a very uh, that I, I agree with that point that that uh, attitude towards it um, because so that point you just made if if. The you can't, yeah, you can't punish for pe people for doing something that they didn't know what was wrong at the time, mm. whether that's or culturally accepted acceptable. culture. And yeah, I, and yeah, I, yeah. you know, so you know, this is the this is the the podcast of um, challenging conversations. Um, so I will liken this to um, the arguments about slavery, for example. So we we look for you're smirking at me there. Oh, so, I wonder, yeah, yeah, I wonder yeah, where this is going. This is going. But we so you know we've had a lot of um, in say the past decade uh, a lot of historical figures who have been philanthropists, you know, real um, good people in their communities, but they supported slavery. Um, they were you know big in the sort of um, shipping industries in that uh, 
in that field. But culturally, at that time, slavery was an accepted practice. Um, and But we're looking back and we're trying to apply our cultural values of, of today onto a time that it was totally different. And if you look, if you did that the other way and you looked forward, it would be like us saying in a hundred years time, anybody that any, you know, amazing philanthropist now that eats meat in the future, if we don't, if no one eats meat in the future and we all look back and say, anyone that ate meat in the, in the 21st century um, should be scrubbed out of history because in a hundred years time our culture has changed and we now you know we we in the future believe that it's off it's off or you know we we don't want to do that anymore we can't apply a different culture in time to that and so that's that I suppose using examples with much bigger issues that was why I wasn't prepared to apply names to it or, or try and get punishment for people where we had an accepted culture at a time and um, they had been able to um, go about their daily lives, that you know, their careers, etc., with a certain set of values. We can't then change the values and then retrospectively look back and say, well, you're now, but 10 years ago, you didn't comply with the values that we've now said are acceptable, so therefore we're going to punish you for what you did 10 years ago. I don't agree with that in, in any... No, it's completely right. What yeah, you're saying, I, it's completely right. And I, I think the only reason, like literally, the only reason I'm this, con like you haven't to make that point, is because up until, I mean, that that would have been what you're saying there would have been common sense five years ago. Mm. But over the last few years, I think because of examples of cancel culture and things like that, mm. it's sort of gone opposite to what you're saying. The common mm. sense there, you know, even to the point where people are losing their jobs, losing their livelihood, their whole lives being destroyed because of maybe they're 28 now and a footballer mm. and and 20 not 20 years ago 15 years ago or maybe 10 years ago mm. when they were 18 mm. and they tweeted something yeah yeah 10 i mean how different was the language 10 years ago what you could say which was culturally oh, yeah, acceptable, which now is not acceptable. i mean fa it, like it, it, you know uh, like 10 years ago a university professor could um use certain words in a lecture mm. reading from it let's talk let's say we're talking about slavery or other things to do with race right mm. could you could say a certain word reading from a textbook 10 mm. years ago and it'd be mm. absolutely fine maybe a video of that online mm. you do that now just saying a word and you're gonna get banned so interest is but you have to move with it and you you have to be prepared to move with it and i think where we end up with conflict is where you get the the dinosaurs who are kind of refusing <clears throat> to change and accept the fact that you know things move on they they, they want to keep things as they are and and some will call it traditionalist other people will call it stubborn um and you know i'd you have to you just have to be able to move with the times i think and the army is changing and and it i mean of course it's changing with you know we now have women across most fields in in the military and uh based on hopefully as it should be based on merit and ability rather than gender 
Um, and so if you pass a test and, and you can fulfill all the criteria, then you should be able to participate in that field. Um, that wasn't the case, you know, a couple of decades ago. Um, so we've got to move with it and, and everything that comes with it. Um, but where we, I think where we end up with conflict is where we, we have this sort of drag of, of keeping some people that have perhaps been involved in that culture for longer, that they don't want to see change and they would, they prefer it as it used to be. Yeah. Those dinosaurs die out. You know, I think that's... They do, but they have an influence in the meantime. Mm, True. And um, especially as they're more senior, they tend to be in positions of authority, training, um, you know, the educators, you know, they they can have quite a big influence on culture. So, Mm. yeah. Did you enjoy your time? I did. Overall? Yeah, no, I really did. And I, I didn't leave because of... Did I leave because of all this stuff? there's no doubt it had an impact um but the reason I was leaving was because I wasn't fulfilled by the army anymore I I, the army um is is wonderful at most of what it does but I have I have quite a creative kind of outside the box mind and that didn't work so well when I kind of went skipping into the boss's office and saying you know I've got this idea. <laughs> how about we do it like this? And how about we change this and redesign this and blah, blah, blah. And, and sometimes the, the feedback would be either no, because we've been doing it like this for 20 years, or just plain silence and the stare of utter confusion and bewilderment. And I'd sort of like gradually reverse my way out the office and, and go back to writing reports. But no, I, I loved my time in the army and I got, I really enjoyed the flying. I enjoyed learning. I enjoyed the training. Um, I enjoyed being a trainer because um, my last couple of years I was teaching ground school tactics and uh, and I really enjoyed that. But it got to the point where I was bored and I think if you stay you just become a moaner if you're bored. Yeah, a morale hoover. Yeah. We all yeah. experience one of those people. And I was, I'd was i seen that with other people who you just think, just leave. Yeah, like, you wonder why they're still there. Yeah, just go. Like it's, I, I was irritated by them. I found them it lazy that they would, they were too lazy to go, but yet they would sap everybody else's morale. The, the the few people I've experienced like that when I was in, who I've had crossover with into the outside world, and they're very few, mm. have the same attitude on the outside world. Mm. And I wonder if it's just a personality trait that it, they would have had whatever, whether it was military or not. Yeah, it, uh, I've no doubt that there are some people that they actually get a kick out moaning, and you'll find them everywhere. Um, I'm just kind of, I think I said it in the last po- podcast, I'm sort of, pathologically optimistic and I find it I don't want to be around that kind of energy I don't um, I'm always looking for ways to do things better do things more efficiently almost to my detriment that I can't settle I can't um, I can't just I find it quite difficult to just be content with what I've got 
Um, I'm always looking for the next way to grow the business, to grow, um, to, to make the artwork better, more valuable, um, more well-known. And I, I find, you know, if, you, if you'd have asked me like four years ago when I started the business or certainly when I became full-time self-employed, and and you just said right in uh, by this time, the artwork value will have grown to this much. I'd have, I'd have been absolutely delighted, but now that it's here, I sort of, you know, I'm still looking for how to make it even better, which is actually a, you know my a, a fault in in me that is I find it very difficult to sort of why is that a fault? Settle. Why are you looking at that like a fault? Um, because it, it, you don't actually, I find it very difficult to be satisfied with it. <clears throat> and, uh, almost like it's, uh, how to describe it? It's almost like you don't get the satisfaction out of the achievement. Um, and so then it, so the satisfaction must come at the next bit or the next bit, or the next bit. And it, in some ways, that's great because it drives you forward, but it would just be really nice to, to one day think, oh, I've made it. Mm. So, I suppose it depends what your expectations are, right, and what, you, what your objective yeah, is. Yeah. Like, it sounds, well, I keep moving your the objectives. Yeah. yeah. So I, and I move it before I get to it. So if I'm getting close to it, you know, this year I set myself a target. I said, right, I'm going to raise £100,000 for a task. And um, and then when it got to, like, 90, I was like, oh, maybe I should have set 150. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is really annoying because, you know, 100000 for charity is, is, is an amazing amount of money. Um, and I almost don't believe people when they say, like, that's amazing. I just don't believe it. Um, but I'm I'm learning that. I'm sort of learning to uh, look at it for what it is and and be okay with sometimes be okay with actually singing my own praises a little bit. Um, and maybe the objective shouldn't be like business oriented. Maybe the objective should be less uh, uh, less specific and more sort of you life oriented you yeah know, and that's what you have to try oriented. and pick out of it actually is that i spent a lot of time this week in my garden um <laughs> most people would just be content with like um like doing some gardening you know <clears throat> packing it down for winter doing what normal gardening people do no i have re-landscaped my entire garden it looks like the somme and um but i but I've actually not done what I usually do and try and finish it all in double quick time. I've actually really enjoyed the process. I have enjoyed gardening and landscaping and doing a little bit every day and spending the time outside in um, in the fresh air. And I've really enjoyed it. And I think you have to kind of... Like you say, you you have to recognise the 
the good life that this business has enabled as well as the business itself yeah the, like the journey is the journey is as valuable as the as yeah the, the, the process the is as important as the product well, yeah and, and you know the that, irony yeah. is that is the advice that i give to other people about art when they say oh i you know i i get really stuck or i don't um i'm worried about ruining a piece um, because I, you know, I'm really happy with it at this stage. I don't, I don't want to add color to it I, because I might ruin it. And I sort of say to them, yeah, but it's the process, not the product. Like enjoy ruining it because the worst that can happen is it's going to go in the bin. Like that is literally the worst that's going to happen. And that's the advice I give to everyone. And then I don't follow my own advice. So, um, well, talk me through the process. So, so, well, I mean, so first off, how do you, how do you go about, selecting a subject like well most of my so for the last four years well I'll go back to the beginning I didn't start this to make any money I started it because I was out in Kenya with the military um we were on medevac duty and um uh you spend a lot of time on standby so I had a lot of time kicking about and other people would read books um, or play PlayStation or, or do fizz or whatever. I drew pictures and I really enjoyed it. I, I'd always been able to draw, but I just, I'd taken out a whole load of art materials with me and, um, and uh, I just enjoyed sitting and sketching and I've made quite a lot of expat friends out there and um, a couple of them saw my sketchbook and offered to host an exhibition in their restaurant. And so um, it was it was a, a really lovely offer. I got the pieces framed, did all the marketing for this little preview night, and uh, then they were going to be up on the walls for a week. And I sold 10 or 11 pieces and for, for you know, relatively small money, um, you know, to between two and four hundred pounds I think they were framed and but I was absolutely adamant that I was not going to do this for a living because I had a sculpture business before the army and it had run into the 2008 credit crunch oh I wanted to ask you for that as well yeah go on yeah on, um and it had it had failed and that's actually why I ended up joining the army oh right okay okay yeah. we'll come back to that yeah yeah <laughs> so um because I, I literally, I'd run out of money. So so when this little exhibition, and then I came back from Kenya, the pieces kept selling. Um, I was just painting. I was purely painting what I wanted to paint, which was mostly elephants and, and um, animals of some kind in watercolours and little sketches. And then switched over to oil. They got a bit bigger. Um the demand was there because I was basically posting them onto Facebook saying for sale. And then if I could, uh, if it, once somebody bought it, I would then also post it as sold. And so people were seeing that the demand, you know, if they wanted one, they were going to have to get on it quite quickly um, when the next one came up. So, so that was the sort of model whilst I was in the army. And now I didn't have to make any money because I had a salary. So if people approached me and said, oh, can you do this commission of blah, 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 um, I could say no. And 
which was quite confusing for people because all artists are poor and need money and always have to say yes to everything. So, um, but I, but I didn't because I was still being paid. So it was only, it was the fact that my contract was coming to an end and, and cause I was, because I was air corps, although I'd served, I, by the time I left, I would have served eight years post Sandhurst, but actually I was still on a short service commission and an extended one. And, um, I didn't want to go on to, uh, an intermediate regular, um, for various pay reasons. And so I knew my end date and I knew I wanted to leave that basically there was, there was just no job on the jobs list that I wanted. And, um, but I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I kind of thought, well, I'll go and I I have, I have a, a good degree. And I thought, well, I'll just go and do some kind of graduate training thing and in the city. Um, still adamant I wasn't going to do the art. But then the art started to grow more significantly and I got to the point where actually if I had the time, I I was on leave, I could actually match my salary. And so I thought, right, well, this is, you know, I either go for it or I put this to bed now as a as a hobby but were you were you still sketching or were you painting them i was painting yeah so they i moved into oils by this stage and they were um by this stage they were now about sort of 1500 pounds each something like that um and maybe maybe a little bit more no about 1500 pounds and for a commission no, just okay. for a piece that I'd painted and, and advertised on, but purely on Facebook. And um, so so I had, by this stage, I had 15 months left in the army. And I thought, right, I'm going to go for it. And so I put myself onto all of the resettlement courses about small business, um, accounting for small business, marketing for small business, mm-hmm. because the art was fine, but I didn't... <clears throat> have the skills uh, in in business in sales in marketing and in understanding my accounts to run them properly um not to do them I don't ever want to do my accounts and I have an accountant to do that because they're much better at it than I am but I needed to understand the language that we were talking about and I was already registered probably a little bit too early as a limited company um didn't have a clue what a dividend was didn't understand that I had to actually, um, I couldn't just take money out of the business. I just didn't get it. So did all those courses. And um, and I, I spread out my resettlement leave rather than taking it all as a chunk at the end. I basically went down to sort of three or four days a week from about six months out. Um, and so I had more time to paint. And so then it got to my leave date and I through about two months before I was leaving this is in about February I threw my entire model of um paint one sell one out of the window I said no I'm going to do a show a big show in London because I'd saved up about about 20,000 pounds and 
I knew that if I didn't do the show straight away, uh, I would eat into that money just living because I would no longer have a salary and then I wouldn't be able to do it at all. So I just threw everything at doing this one big show on Pall Mall in the centre of London and, um, and it was kind of sink or swim. And, you know, I'm a firm believer in things happening for a reason. And you didn't fancy somewhere smaller. Like, no. Uh, but like the thing is, if you go, but if you go smaller, then you're you're not gonna um, get the exposure that would potentially make it lift off. Now, the only re- bear in mind that show cost uh, twenty five thousand pounds to run it, um, so it was everything I had, and and then. Um, at the same time, I was filming for the Portrait Artist of the Year competition, but I couldn't tell anybody about that because it, we because it wasn't broadcast yet. But I knew that was kind of happening in the background. Um, and I had agreed to do a charity paint, a charity paint for the Invictus Games. And um, the donation to that was three paintings. I, I, they'd asked for one. I'd done three. and But the third of which I still hadn't painted a week before this auction was going ahead. And that, that in that week was this show in London. So every evening after hosting the show, I would be sat in the gallery painting this last painting, also trying to video it, t- to time-lapse it so that I could I could have this presentation material and then because it's oil paint it doesn't dry so on the night of the auction there's me in black tie trying to get three wet paintings into a taxi from Pall Mall across to the Dorchester um uh where they all had to go as well as the easels and I was you know basically doing it as a sort of you know a almost like a live paint so I had to take something that looked like I you know my palette my brushes whatever so that it looked like I was still live painting in proper like full-length black tie (laughs) and um logistical nightmare but it worked and then I still the following day had to host the show on the that was on Friday night and then on Saturday morning I still had to host the show um and so get all of the paintings out of the Dorchester at, you know, eight, nine o'clock in the morning, back in a taxi, back across to the show. And, um, but on that night, I, one of, they ended up being the biggest lot of the, um, of the auction and they went for £30,000 for the three and or 10000 10, for three different buyers. And I went to see each of the buyers and on the night and I, I, told them that the show was open and um one of them came to the show that following day and bought the biggest piece and another one in the show now if he hadn't have bought that piece I wouldn't have been able to do a show the following year like that model wouldn't have worked so it financially I would have come out of it thinking well I can't afford to do another show like that but because that 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 one person coming in that I'd only met the night before, that I'd only been at that thing because I had agreed to do a charity paint, like that all the stars aligned and then it was kind of 
And I remember him saying to me, like, what's the plan? You know, he's as it happened, he's ex-military. Um, and he said, you know, what's the business plan? And I said, I don't know. And I'm not actually going to do one because everything about this business has come from the ability to make the most of opportunities that come up on the day. And if I tie myself to a business plan, actually I'm closing down a lot of those opportunities and I can't stay as flexible as I need to be. And to this day, I I still think like that. I still... I still um, give myself the, the flexibility with the business to be able to say, right, I'm going to go and do that, or I'm going to, I'm going to um, go to this event. We'll see what comes of it, who I meet, and and then make a plan from there. So, to a point, like I've done a show, I've tried to do a show every year. They've now grown so big that I can't do a show every year because I can't paint enough to fill it. And if I did then actually I'm not exclusive enough. So I'm actually deliberately reducing the number of paintings that are available so um, so that they keep their value. So Are you warm enough? Just. I'm going to put this on. No, no, I've got the heat there. One sec. Sorry, put it on if you want. Um, when you say big, uh, sorry, when you say the show is big, how many pieces are we talking? 30. And then how long is the creative process for each piece? So how many like hours are we talking? Is that all you like you're talking 12 months to do 30 pieces? No, I would do that in four months. Like I would go, so I, ha I am a last minute Charlie, like I have to have a deadline. And um, my for the last, so I've done five London shows now and a Winchester show in the time that I've been out of the army, um, all self-represented, so I don't have any help with it. I just basically rent the space and for a lot of money, but equally I don't pay commission to anybody when I sell something, so I can do what I want with it. Um, so I... But my, what's ended up happening is that I have booked a show in January for June and then gone into mega panic because I haven't actually started painting the collection yet. Um, and then you have to work back from June that I've got to let them, the paintings dry. They've got to be varnished, they've got to be photographed, catalogued, and all that work is me. So I have to give myself enough time to to format the catalogue, have it printed um, and marketed before the show. So so you work back from June, that takes you about, you know, so my sort of painting cutoff time is, let's say, the second week of April for, for a show at the end of June. And I so, think you finished the last one yeah. to allow time to dry because yeah. we were talking earlier just before the podcast. Yeah. Dry time is anything what, up to like a month. Because of the because of the paints, depending well, on the paint. Well, to get it touch dry, yeah, anything anything up to a month, six weeks, um, to get it to a stage where you can at least um, put a put a 
protective varnish on it and you could move it about. You could ship it somewhere or you could transport it to a show. So those paintings yeah. you were putting in the back of the cab to go to the Dorchester. Yeah. If you would if they had certainly brushed against those in any way, shape or form. Yeah, so I had to come up with a way of of <laughs> of boxing them but where the box didn't touch them. So I had these funny little metal brackets and I had to build a frame system that would hold, that would put them basically face to face, but with a gap in between them and then into oh, yeah. a box. Like, honestly, the, the Heath Robinson solutions I come up with to some of these problems are, you don't even want to know, but, but that's, you know, but it worked, and, and it raised a lot of money. So, um, sorry, I took you back there. So, come back forward. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so all that painting is done in in double quick time. So, yeah, anything from twelve to twenty paintings done between January and mid-April. But I am basically in a cave for that time. I I don't really surface. And, um, How many hours a day are you at the creative process? I tend to work in bursts. And so what I used to do was um, I would go full on paint through the night and I'd kind of crash out about five o'clock in the morning. Occasionally when sleep, I didn't really believe that sleep was important. Um, I would just, at that point, if I if it was a really nice morning I'd then go out like on my bike having worked all the way through the night and then I come back I crash for three hours or so do a bit more painting maybe have another couple of hours sleep in the afternoon and then I would go again through the night and um and I would do that for four months and it was I probably have a day or a day or two between paintings so I'd maybe do five days on and then have a couple of days of recovery um, but it was a, it turns out it's a really unhealthy way to live but so science shows that you may know this already mm. science shows that the brain is more creative at night mm. and more logical in the morning mm. and I discovered this the hard way yeah, yeah. and I used to work uh, not after long after I left I was working away and doing like a lot of shift work and the harebrained schemes I come up with mm. on the night shift yeah, yeah. and then go to sleep and then the next the next sort of the, the next not next morning cause, but the next time my, my brain was circling around to what should have been the morning for me I'd be thinking what did I what, why did I do that there because mm. invariably it would cost money so and and that's where the expression "sleep on it" comes yeah, from. Yeah, yes, yeah. You you sleep, think one thing at night, you wake up in the morning and go, ah, okay, got it. I, I try and do that all the yes. time now. It's well, interesting. You, you, so you you, I've read a lot about sleep. Um, somebody gave me a book, and it is called "Why We Sleep," and it is I cannot recommend it highly enough. This. Um, I can't remember I what I've his name this. is. I've listened Professor to a podcast with Matthew something something. Keep talking. I'm going to look it up. It is honest. I cannot recommend it highly enough because it basically links lack of sleep to every disease on the planet. But published also, a few years ago, right? About three or four years? No, five or six years ago, maybe. Yeah, I think so. And um, but it it also it talks about lack of sleep and memory, um, uh, the relation to 
alcohol and how you know people drink because they believe it relaxes them and yes it does but it's actually sedation and it talks about how sedation isn't sleep and so I, I just found the whole book absolutely fascinating but it also scared the shit out of me and yes Matthew, Matthew Walker, Walker yeah. why we sleep yeah um honestly I it is one of the best books I've ever read and it cha it totally changed my life because I was very much I don't need eight hours sleep so it basically says as a species we need seven and a half to eight hours sleep um as a species and those people that say well I don't I only need five actually you're just used to a high level of sleep deprivation and you are used to functioning at that and that's where I was and so which doesn't make it good no it doesn't make it good it's, it's actually very unhealthy in a kind of silent undercover way um and so I thought so I read this book scared the crap out of me and so I thought right I'm going to try this I'm going to do this seven and a half eight hours sleep a night um this is a couple of years ago and um I thought I'm going to do it for 30 days see how I feel well I had had this permanent feeling of like having a, a vice on my head which now was not there and I just hadn't realized it and so all of the I found that um you know conversations and discussions with people I was able to draw on information that you know these uh, things I'd read or, or conversations that I'd had many years before I was suddenly able to like remember it it's almost like that a little bit like that film Limitless where he takes his drug and suddenly he's able to recall things and that is how I felt it was like having this access to parts of my brain that I had just been shut down by lack of sleep and so the coming back to what you were saying this processing that happens overnight when we sleep is and turning short-term memory into long-term memory it's like how the brain reorganizes itself and there's a really interesting bit in there about PTSD and how um, the brain, if it goes, if if the person goes through some kind of trauma, it needs the brain needs to organise that trauma over the next period of sleep. And if it doesn't get it on that first period of sleep, then certainly by the second period of sleep, it needs to have that time in sleep to. Uh, organize that short-term memory into long-term memory otherwise if it doesn't get a chance to do that um, the, everything is confusing that's where you get these uh, flashbacks and um, recall of memory in a, in a not so positive way but of course many people who've been through trauma are sedated when they first Ha, you know, either through for injury or, or whatever. Oh, and okay, if yeah. sedation, the table or yeah. things like that. Yeah. So if sedation, if sedation is not sleep, and you you're then not getting that period of deep sleep and REM sleep, actually you're preventing that organisation of memory for the first for the critical period of two of two days. And that's why people, they're saying that that is one of the reasons why these memories aren't um, stored properly and you, and you get flashbacks and, and symptoms of PTSD. 
Interesting. So, honestly, the, the Matthew Walker book. book. So I, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that I audibled it. So I first heard of Matthew mm. Walker on a Joe Rogan podcast. Okay, I yeah. listened to that. I was like, oh my god. Yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty sure, but it was 2018. It was published. I just saw it there. 2019. But I I I not. Sh- I'm second guessing myself now. But anyway, to, to your point, yeah, I did. Uh, I I got a. A person I was sort of referred to myself as to, to Kate, my missus, mm. as eight-hour Hugh, because my personality changes slightly. As in, not, not like I'm, I've got a bad personality, mm-hmm. as in a grumpy personality, but it changes to, it's like a different, it's just slightly different. It's a little bit more energy in, yeah. a, in a good way, in yeah. a good way, because too much energy to my, and, and uh, m- memories affected and things and yeah. things like that. But it's like, uh, I first started thinking about and paying attention to, being awake at night uh, and the benefits or problems with when I was uh, back to that shift work I was talking about mm. and there was a study that came out this would have been 2012 2013 maybe and they, they had, I say they I can't remember did it it was a study on uh, the impact of shift work mm-hmm. night shift work yep. on human beings yeah. and it was like catastrophe yep. you know it, people who work shift work uh, for long periods of time so weeks at a time mm. consistently for years of their life it's like a 30 percent 40 percent increase in the chance of heart disease mm. diabetes yeah. not like one or two percent well he links it to everything yeah. but heart disease diabetes obesity alzheimer's dementia um blood pressure like ev- you name it, it they've studied it and and it's a real science-based book and I am, you know, I have a science background. So if it doesn't have that, I'm not interested. Um, so that's what I really liked about it is it was very much, uh, so we we hypothesized this and we tested it and this is what we found. And then as a result of that finding, we then tested this and this is what we found. So even different amounts of sleep required as, with different age ranges, um, so uh, young children needing a, a higher amount of sleep and also at different time of night. So teenagers, actually, they don't get tired until later. So their circadian rhythm is shifted later. But yet we still need them to get up and go to school at 8, 9 o'clock. And when... Therefore, they haven't had that period of sleep that they require. And so, it's, you know, and it's no wonder that we all have this in joke that teenagers are really grumpy in the morning and they, you know, they um, they don't want to wake up. But it's because their circadian rhythm is, mm. is shifted later and, and they need a bit more sleep. And then later in life, uh, older people, they haven't quite worked out which way round it is, whether lack of sleep can cause Alzheimer's or whether Alzheimer's is linked to a lack of sleep. I haven't worked out which way around that is yet, but but it's a, a fascinating read. I, I personally think it should be compulsory reading for the entire planet because if you if you if you said to people, we've got this drug and it cures obesity, hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's, dementia, and it's free. Or, or at least greatly reduces the risk yeah. of. Yeah, and it's free. We'd be like, oh my God, this is amazing. All you have to do is go to sleep. The problem is people think they get, like you were saying, people think 
they can live off less, right? Yeah. And the, you can operate off less sleep, but in reality, your body's not... Like, you, you mentioned the circadian rhythm. Mm. Like, the, the circadian rhythm, you, that doesn't shift. That is that is linked to day, night, literally, mm. sunlight, nighttime, uh, through through the seasons. Even. And that's the only bit that I haven't mastered yet. What is do you mean? I am a night owl. I work best at night. Um I find it very difficult to concentrate in the morning, no matter what time I'm up. Um, and I've just kind of accepted that in myself, that I don't book anything in the morning um, for the most part. I don't, because I know that if I have worked the night before, I then give myself that time in bed and that time asleep. So I'm quite content working through till sort of four o'clock in the morning, but I will then not plan anything before midday. Mm. And so I still get that time, but it's just shifted later. And in the winter, I do have to make sure that I get outside because some, I found myself, I was going for days and I actually, because for the most part, I was either asleep or inside working. I actually wouldn't see daylight for days on end. And yes, yeah, I, I experienced the impact of this right in quite a unique way when I was working away. And, and the reason I say it's quite a unique way to get an understanding of how big this just it being day and night was mm. on me. So at the time of this extend prolonged like night shift stuff, mm. my working environment was in a in a building where there was no. I mean, there was some small windows, but there was very little chance of getting any sunlight if it was if it was coming through at all. Um, it was very rigid. My 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 daytime routine was very rigid. I'd be on site for eight 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 hours, and then before going on site and after going on site, I had routine set in stone from the times I was eating my meals to the times I was going to the gym to what time I was getting to bed uh, and what I was doing in bed, watching a movie or going straight to sleep, and the the sleep impact I, I i dramatically needed more sleep even though everything was exactly the same mm. i was still doing an hour or two hours or whatever my routine was in the gym i still working the same hours on site i was it was but i needed dramatically more sleep and mm. i had dramatically less energy when i was on the night shift as opposed to the day shift mm. whether i had gotten used to it over two weeks mm. or not it didn't it didn't make a difference when i was on a night shift i i would struggle to be in the gym and with the energy I had if I was on a day shift and I would need at minimum eight hours I would struggle to get out of bed mm. I'd, struggle, I'd, struggle, I'd want to get straight into bed there would be no TV when I was on the day shift I could in inverted commas operate on much less hours mm. I'd stay up chinwagging with the guys mm. you know I'd, I'd relax at dinner I'd go to the gym I'd spend a bit, bit more longer in the gym and yet I'd have more energy anyway even though I was getting more sleep and being more productive and the only difference was the sun was up or the sun was down yeah uh, yep. And it's very much, uh, if you, if people want to have an impact on their sleep or they want to change their circadian rhythm slightly, actually you can do a lot with your exposure to sunlight. So if people are struggling to go to sleep at night, actually one of the things that they can do is they can get out early in the morning straight into bright sunlight. And so their body is is getting the signals the physiological signals that it is day early and then their 
rhythm is shifted earlier and and equally when they get to the end of the day um you can do all sorts of things you know that's what night mode is for in your phone is to take the blue daylight or simulated daylight away from you earlier um in extremists people will actually wear uh tinted glasses which are have this sort of yellow orangey tones in order that they're tricking their brain into believing it's um later on in the day and so their body winds down earlier and then they can go to sleep and you can do the same the other way around so if you want to shift your circadian rhythm later you go out in the morning with sunglasses on and so you don't expose your body to that that sunlight earlier um i i've kind of found i suppose my pattern that i'm happy with i if in an ideal world if i had a superpower it would be to not have to sleep because i imagine what you could do like imagine all that time that you could be doing stuff like i almost get frustrated that i have to go to sleep the difference between then and and now in terms of previous sleep deprivation and now is that now i just accept that sleep is not um something that i can forfeit i have to do it but i still find it a chore it's like something i have to factor into my routine yeah see i have no issue with valuing sleep mm. i do have i do have an issue with valuing doing nothing while i'm awake yes like half an hour yeah. an hour of yeah. no no nothing yeah St- stick a stick a program on not yeah. something educational here on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, Stick yeah. a program on that is mind-numbingly, like, yeah. not mind-numbingly boring because I would watch it, yeah. but something I'm getting absolutely no value from <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. You know, the, uh, um, what's on at the minute? I'm a celebrity. Oh, I'm just devastated by the fact that Gardener's World isn't on. Oh my it's God. finished for the winter, I know. But the thing <laughs> is, like, each of us has our passion story. I mean, I, I'm really, really enjoying my garden. And, and more importantly, Monty Don's just got a new puppy. So, you know, that is like, it's just the most, one. it was the most wonderful, uh, total chill out. I would put my, put my wood burner on, um, get some dinner. And it was like this utter treat to just sit and watch this totally peaceful program of an evening. I, I wasn't achieving anything. I wasn't, but it was just purely for me. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm similar to you in that I get this feeling of wasting time. Um, I which I find almost quite yeah. distressing. That Where do you think that comes from? I don't know. It's a very good question and something that I'm asking my counsellor about on a regular basis. You think it's fr- from the military? No. No. I've I'm not sure I know many people who are not military who have that issue. No, but I think the issue. military probably attracts people that are like that. So yeah. quite motivated to achieve things. But I know that I've always been like that. 
bringing you this podcast today are the Aardvark Group. Founded in 1982, Aardvark has established itself as a major player in its field. Renowned for its exceptional technology and innovative propositions that have supported countless defence ministries, the humanitarian and NGO sectors, and commercial operators in theatres of war and post-conflict environments around the world. Aardvark is foremost a humanitarian organisation working to help rid the world of the explosive remnants of war. Their technologies are uniquely developed by operators for operators, which ensures that every product, system or platform that they provide conforms to the essential criteria of stability, survivability and reliability. Aardvark know that to have a truly lasting positive impact, their technologies must be cost effective. So they've commissioned a number of projects with their research partners to develop technical innovations with the core aim of delivering affordable solutions that can be deployed directly into communities to reduce the incidence of accidents and deaths due to explosive threats. Aardvark are headquartered in the UK with offices in the United States of America and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. You can find out more about them by going to Aardvark dot group not just about the products and services they provide but also about the incredible work but also about the incredible work they do to support the military community and military charities. Go to their website aardvark.group or find them on social media the Aardvark group. Yeah maybe I just love achieving stuff. I mean who doesn't? Well, there are a lot of people that aren't fast either way. Yeah. I mean, I get an enormous... I think the difference is I, I've just adjusted what a good, successful day looks like. So, whereas, before, as like I was saying before, with my, with my garden, um, before, success would have looked like finishing the whole thing in two days... Now I'm like, a successful day is that I've gone and done a bit and I enjoyed it. And and that's the difference. But I'm still achieving that sense of satisfaction and enjoyment. It's just I don't have to finish the whole thing. Um, it's just as valid. And it's like my little bit of daily uh, self-care to go and do that. I, my days are back to front because I so I, I accept the fact that I'm not particularly good when I wake up in terms of being efficient I'm really good at night so I will wake up and I'll go and do the the self-care bits whether that's you know spending time in the garden or um, sometimes just sitting and looking out the window but then then I will go to work and I will work right through and once I finish work the lights go off and go straight to bed so my whereas other people will their day starts with work and then they relax at the end I just I do it back to front mm. I'm gonna press pause I need to go to the toilet right back I'm back from the little boys room uh, why why do you th- think you have you are successful because I broke with convention and most artists will basically wait for a gallery to spot them 
and then a gallery will take them on, represent <coughs> them. And I kind of said, well, why? And what can I do to do everything that a gallery would do? Not that I was anti-gallery. I just thought, well, rather than waiting, why don't I just do as much as I can um, to make it work without needing that? And as a result, that's why I did all the business courses, because I needed to understand how I would go about doing that and making it as successful as it could be without any external um, support. So it was like forcing recognition? Sorry? For, like forcing recognition? No, uh, um, it, was, it was actually more of an understanding of the psychology of sales and understanding supply and demand, understanding how to build a brand. And, uh, and I did a lot of reading. And, and actually, it's been key to a lot of my decisions about keeping the brand very exclusive in favor of easy money um, or over and above taking easy money. So it would have been very easy for me to say yes to doing commissions but actually I didn't want to do commissions and I knew I would get bogged down in fulfilling those commissions rather than developing the style and um, developing the work for that could then be exhibited, marketed and used to build the business. Um, and it's why I don't do prints. Like I could, I have calls, oh. I have calls to do prints all the time or do you do, would you do a print of this would you do a print run of this I could make a lot of money doing that but I don't want to because well two reasons the main reason being it would devalue the originals in my opinion and is that is that what it does to other artists though who run prints is that proven um or not? it was a piece of advice I got quite early on that until the value is high enough in the originals that your prints would devalue it because um, you're basically giving people access to own that image without having to pay the price of the original. And if, But the reality is if they, if they really want it, for the most part, particularly a year or two ago when the prices were perhaps a little bit more reasonable, um, they would find a way to do it. They would find a way to afford that original, and um, I. Uh, but the second reason is logistics. Is I actually having a print run done to make to keep it cost effective? You've got to have the whole print run done, or at least have them done in high enough quantities that you know. And then they've all got to be stored flat. You know, then they've got to be packaged. I've got to receive an order package an order, send an order, get it to the post office. Like, actually, that becomes your entire time taken up with fulfilling that kind of part of the business. And I did, you know, where do you store your packaging materials? Where do you, where do you physically, at the time, I was running this entire operation out of a one-bedroom flat. And, it, you know, my living room was my studio. And... I just didn't have the capacity to, to do it. Now, the choice is more that um, the, the work wouldn't translate very well to prints anyway, and I don't, want, I don't want to give people a sort of second-rate version of what I'm producing. So, Explain that to me. Why wouldn't it translate very well? Because the, 
the work it like there's a lot of metallic now in there so i use quite a lot of gold leaf um uh, i okay. use very thick paint applied with palette knives and so you've got this <clears throat> texture and the texture obviously catches the light in different ways depending on how where you move around the painting it looks different from different angles up close far away you just don't get that in a print yeah i'm remembering paintings i've seen like that in gallery not that i've been to very many galleries but yeah. those kind of paintings always do stand out and they're fascinating yeah. because yeah they're not two-dimensional no there's something else to them that is different yeah. to what they're sat next to yeah and yeah. so i use an awful lot of color as well and getting that translation of color into a print is really difficult and especially when you start adding in in uh, gold it's just it just never looks the same so and that's not to take away anything from artists that do prints and that make their living doing prints it's just a different business model and it's it's a route that i've chosen not to do um but what it means is that because there's only one of each of one of my pieces, if I've got people that are waiting for the next collection or for the next release, and so so I'm oversubscribed, and there are still pieces that are left over from from this year and last year, but but not that many and. Um, and they do kind of gradually get, particularly as the prices are going up each year, you tend to find that when people find the work now, they actually will take a piece from two years ago purely because it's within their budget. And so those kind of get mopped up a little bit later. Um, but, yeah, as as a business model, it's worked by, by keeping it very exclusive and um keeping and um, building the brand in that way that i i almost feel a responsibility that if somebody buys into my work and they become either a, you know they just own one piece or they become a collector i feel that i have a responsibility to increase the value of their pieces even though i know that probably 95% of the paintings that i've sold so far they don't they will never sell them because even if they've gone up in value significantly but they've bought them because they love them but i still feel that responsibility to justify the investment for them and it is an investment because they're a lot of money now you know that we're talking you know the top piece this year sold for over forty thousand. um but i but the, but I've got a lot of repeat clients who keep coming back and each year they will, they don't buy every year, but each year they will check out the collection. If there's something in there that they really like, then then they will have it. Um, How different are your collections in terms of theme? Well, the themes have been relatively similar for the last <coughs> three years, four years, because I've partnered with a charity and so tusk not tusk at first so so for the oh, first because year you with HR, okay. yeah so so first it was um the invictus games but then the second charity i partnered with was born free and so 
the idea being, I mean, now I'm an ambassador for Tusk, which is very different and it's a much closer relationship. But um, before, I didn't really have the credentials to, um, to to have that kind of relationship. And so what I what I basically suggested to the charity was, look, I'm going to raise you a lot of money, but what I need you to do is get your audience into my show. They are already following wildlife conservation there they're keen to find ways to make money for the charity i'm offering that and but you just have to get them in there so therefore i knew my audience and i mean like i said the whole all the work started when i was in kenya anyway so i enjoyed painting that kind of thing but what it did was it focused what i was doing onto a specific audience so did a year with born free and then moved to Tusk and and that is where I will stay I think they're a fantastic charity and um and I what's different about them to other charities I don't know much about Tusk they are so they've been going 30 years just 30 30, 32 years they've raised over 100 million for African conservation and but they are an incredibly small team so in terms of their ratios of, of how much money they raise compared to how much actually is given out is is one of the highest in uh, it, worldwide. And they've got a huge amount. Because of that, they, they well, not because of that. I, re- I reckon the reason that they've got there is, be- and is because they're small, they are very careful about the the projects which they partner with to give and who to give their money to so where some charities born free is a different model born free basically owns a lot of the conservation work that they do they own the game reserve they own and so their outgoings are very very high but they're also very inflexible um tusk raises the money and then it allocates that money to certain projects across africa and those projects have to apply for that money and they have to keep justifying why, you know, that, that they're doing the work. That And it's there's a lot more kind of oversight of how that um, that project is doing. But it all, because it's so small, it was able to, even during COVID, it was able to really think on its feet very quickly because, of course, a lot of people's money was being diverted away from con- of Af- African conservation and towards the NHS. It was a very homegrown problem, um, and and quite rightly there was it focused people's attention. But what it meant was was that not only was were they getting a lot less donations, but also the projects themselves were suffering be- in Africa because there was no tourism, and the tourism funds the a lot of the projects out there, particularly the rangers um, who protect all of this wildlife. So the um, they were having mass redundancies of rangers. And of course, there's no welfare system across Africa. You don't suddenly, you know, go on the dole and start taking a, a living from from benefits you they people literally had no money and so of course if people have no money and they can't feed their family what will they revert to is poaching and so 
what Tusk did was very quickly come up with a way to highlight the the plight of rangers, but also to draw enormous amounts of money into that cause and set up the Wildlife Ranger Challenge. Um, it raised, I believe, 30 million in the first year, which was match, um, which included the match funding. Um, but I, I just, it, it's very similar to how I, I explained it before, how I run my business is I don't have a plan for things that will be thrown at me tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. And because I don't have that plan, I can be very flexible on how I, on, on where I decide to go with it. And that's what I really liked about this charity. Um, in, incredibly efficient, incredibly high impact stuff. Um, but they're not so set in their ways that they can't stay frosty and, and keep getting the best out of every scrap of money that is donated to them. Mm. It's unusual for a charity, right, to be able to pivot quickly on, on changing situations, but I suppose for one that's focused heavily on Africa, then it has to be. Mm. I'm hoping um, uh, the conservation side really interests me uh, because, uh, I mean, I've had some guests on. Um, we talked about the Rangers, a guy called Simon Leacon, ex ex Hereford, and he's got a company called Big Big Five Protection who they go and train Rangers in anti-poaching and things like this uh, in Africa and, and other places. And then um, I mentioned David... I listened to his podcast actually. I oh, Simon Leakes, did you? Fascinating, yeah. Yeah, what a good. Yeah, he'd, really, he'd be back really in while well, he's away at the moment. Yeah. Um, uh, There's a lot of there are a lot of ex Hereford people in that sphere, and all doing great work. Sort of a lot of training, ranger training, um, and you know, sort of applying those skills out there to. I, I personally believe it's a really good cause. Well, interestingly, so two other guests I had on, um, Shay Doyle and uh, Christy Vincent. So Shay Doyle and Christy Vincent, they're both ex-military, mm. but the majority of their careers, the majority of their adult working life was spent as undercover police officers, like at the highest level mm-hmm. in the UK. And they're now working with Simon. Mm. Um they're working with Simon uh, in in uh, enhancing the training and capabilities being delivered to the Rangers, mm. so that the Rangers not only great at the the, the kinetic over anti poaching stuff, but being able to infiltrate the anti poaching gangs before they go on the poaching operations. Absolutely. So teaching yeah. and teaching the local police in how yeah. to spot these gangs and spot the individuals yeah. and just it's fascinating work. Well, fascinating a lot of work. the work that that has to be done in and and this applies not just to african conservation this applies to you know um the gang culture in the uk um why why do why do people end up doing it behaving in a certain way and i was i went to the tusk conservation awards at the beginning of this month which you know was a real privilege and just to be there hampton court palace like Prince William was there and but I was sat on a table with this lady called Amy Dixon and she basically runs Amy Dixon Amy Dixon yeah she runs a project that I believe it's I believe it's called Lion Landscapes but basically what her project does was it was it worked out why do 
tribesmen kill lions? And what is it that motivates them to do it? And it, a lot of the sort of warrior, uh, you know, killing the first lion, the the tradition of being strong, brave, was all very real. But actually, when they delved a little bit further, that was so that they would have they would find a wife. And so then they asked the question: Okay, why do the wives want these traits? And actually, it was for when they really got into it for safety and childbirth. And so then they start saying, okay, well, if we can give you safety and childbirth in another way, then would that then prevent the killing of lions? Um, they then went down the, the line of, um, okay, well, if we can give them another way to want to protect lions you know what, what what other traits would you value in your husband and actually the key one that came down was being able to read and write so they then brought in education and taught them how to read and write because that was seen like if you if you if they were going to choose a husband one which was brave and had killed a lion or one which was could read and write they would choose one which could read and write and so that so then they started to bring that in then they went along the lines of um, wanting to incentivize protecting the wildlife around them. And so they would get points, basically, for wildlife that was found in, in their area. And that would lead to money given by the projects for, by, by the um, by Lion Landscapes, which was then given to the community. And now they have a set of camera traps where they get points for different species being found in their area. So the more animals that are caught on these camera traps, the more money that comes into the community. And so there's a direct link to the amount of wildlife that is directly related to the amount of money that gets given to the community. So there is a community incentive to protect and the wildlife in their area. There is a tribesman somewhere monetizing that. He's driving around with a truckload yeah, yeah. of different species Absolutely. and he's renting them out to the villagers. Yeah. Like, I'll drive these past the cameras. Well, I asked that question. <laughs> I asked that question. I'd be doing that. <laughs> but I asked that question. I said, what, what is to stop people from, you know, kind of ushering, like herding <laughs> these, these animals towards a certain, a certain waterhole? <laughs> and, uh, but the reality is you ain't going to move an elephant. It doesn't want to no, move. Yeah. And, you know, things, it's th but it's things like wild dogs. You would get... You would get, say, um, you know, a thousand points for an antelope, but you get twenty thousand points for a wild dog, and so. But the wild dogs are, you know, it's a real privilege to be able to see them. They are incredibly elusive, and they travel a long, long way. And so, but by making that environment, um, you know, making sure there is enough wildlife for the wild dogs to feed on in that area and that all comes through education and, and you know being able to read and write and 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 contribute in that way like the whole thing is linked and I just loved that the fact that people were not trying to impose our values you know we like wildlife great and we want to protect it great but what do these people need and want 
And that is the most important bit. And that's what I, it is the engagement of the communities that is what Tusk is absolutely set on, that you cannot have good conservation without engaging the communities. Otherwise it's, it's pointless and it's a waste of money. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I'm, I'm hoping, uh, we spoke about him before the podcast. Davis and John Clare joined us for lunch because the Arbat group are heavily involved mm. in Africa mm. and mainly in post-conflict zone demining and things of that nature, um, but also in conservation. So um, uh, uh, providing uh, technological capabilities to parks, national parks and things of that like. Hopefully so. We'll see. We'll give them a call after this. But no, it's fascinating. It's good it's good to hear mm. one, like a, a charity doing that kind of thing, but two, a charity that is it's not it's uh what's the word? It's running efficiently. Mm. It's not oversubscribed with people. It's been done properly for the right reasons. Yeah. I think that, that's what it sounds like to me. Because yeah. they're few and far between at the moment. Yeah. You know, it's very, I think it's it's very easy, especially in, in like the charity sector where things are very emotionally driven. It's very easy to, and quite often I think with charities, you get people who start them up, especially when, yeah, especially in the start of days, they start it up and they're, they're formed in such a way that they're people with little business acumen, mm. not a lot of, but they've got, they got bags of energy, got mm. bags of heart. But it means that, the charity is founded upon really inefficient ways of working. Mm. And when they grow like that, it's just, it's just waste everywhere, unfortunately. Yes, I've also seen it happen the other way, where it's too businessy and they forget to be a charity. Um, that's probably a conversation for offline. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Definitely. Or we can have it and you can decide whether you cut it out of the conversation. I don't cut anything from the podcast. Yeah. You know that after the last yeah. one. Yeah. Don't cut anything. No. But I... Let's yes, not have it, it's let's not have it in this podcast. Let's not yeah, discuss it in this, this is, podcast. This is the third charity that I've supported. And this is definitely the one that I want to stick with. It, it's all about matching values, isn't it? And And I... Every time I raise money for them or i attend one of their events i or i see work that they do i did the i got roped into doing the half marathon the lower half marathon out in kenya in the summer because i was um i think i saw pictures actually yeah, yeah i was raising this money <laughs> i was raising this money for them and the lower half marathon came about two weeks after my show and uh Tusk said, oh, yeah, you should come out to Africa with us after your show. And I was like, oh, God, you know what? That would just be the best. I, I'll really need a break by then because it will have been flat out, really, for six months. And they're like, yeah, by the way, uh, <laughs> you've got to run a half marathon when you get there. I was like, oh, God. Now, bear in mind, my training up to going out to Africa, my longest run for the year was six miles. And... I am not a natural runner. If you imagine like the the offspring of Mr. Bean and Miranda, it's, <laughs> it's basically me, sort of like some kind of epileptic giraffe. But but you know, I've got a I've got a reasonable sort of underlying level of fitness, mainly because I keep myself busy and and um, you know I cycle a lot. But running was not is not for me. And this marathon, half marathon, was at six and a half thousand feet at 25 degrees. And they were like, oh, yeah, and by the way, it's quite hilly. 
I was like, oh, good. <laughs> like, this is amazing. So, but you know what? The atmosphere was absolutely amazing. And I had gone out there with, you know, just thinking, I just need to get round it. And, you know, if I walk, I'm not fast. But actually, I ran the whole thing and I was feeling pretty chuffed with myself. But don't get me wrong, halfway round, I was having a proper moment. A real chunter, like, background. Like, well, I don't know why I'm doing this. I was standing at the, I was at the bottom of a hill and I was at this hill. It wasn't just, well, the first bit was just really steep and it's all trail running. But then it just went on and on and on and on. And I was, I was having a real moan. And then this guy ran past me and on his, he had a t-shirt on, on the back of his t-shirt, it said barefoot. And I looked down, he had no bloody shoes on. And he was doing a full marathon. Was he African? No. White guy? Yeah. Oh, my God. And Must I have been South African. <laughs> no. And, and I was like, I just need to stop moaning, really, don't I? So I was like, shut up, get up the hill and stop whinging. But it was amazing. And, you know, all the support stations all the way around, they, they, they do some very clever things to help you get round it. And um, at the top of that really, really long hill, the last bit of it is quite steep and halfway up they've got a sign that says smile at the point where you least want to smile and at the top they've got a, a camera but all of the people in the station have got the list of of the all the runners and everybody's names and they're they've got a person with binos there basically spotting. spotting you and then as you come up the hill they're like come on hannah come on hannah and you feel like you've got your own personal support party there but Brilliant. it isn't half morale boosting as yeah. you get up there. But, and then of course you look round and you're like, oh, there's two rhino there. Oh, amazing. Like, yeah, it's rhino and zebra and I um, can't remember what else I saw on the way round. Africa's Plenty amazing, of, isn't it? Oh, I remember going yeah, through, uh, the first time I went was with work, uh, as in my day job, Imhasa, what, three years ago to Cape Town. And I remember going through, now, this is my memory anyway. Maybe, I, I don't think I was wrong. I'm wrong in remembering it. You know, and your memory plays tricks on you. Mm. But we were driving through Cape Town, went past a water source in the middle of Cape Town. They were flamingo. Yeah. It's like, oh my God. Yeah. And that was my first time to, you know, my first time in sub-Saharan Africa yeah. ever at that point. Well, you do get a little bit, I found myself getting a little bit complacent when I was out there with the army because cause we were flying. You see the wildlife every day or every day that you're flying, certainly. And I did find my, I caught myself once where we were, we were out just on a, on a currency flight to go, just go and do some general handling. And there was this area that was really, really good for general handling, um, <clears throat> near the waterhole. And I found myself flying over and I was like, oh, God. What do you mean general handling? Ge general handling is like, you know, just practicing maneuvering the aircraft, doing certain maneuvers, mostly at low level. And, but you have to do a certain, you, I think you had to do like an hour and a half of just pure general handling training per month as part of your currency. So off we went to do this. It, it means basically you're not just getting your hours by doing to and fro straight line. You're actually handling the aircraft properly. Anyway, so we got to the waterhole and I remember thinking, oh God, like elephants were at the waterhole again. Fucking hell. Like, and I just had to, <laughs> I just had to stop myself and be just like, what are you thinking? Like, there are people that pay tens of thousands of pounds to come and get an airborne safari 
and see a massive herd of elephants, babies, big tuskers, everything, and you're whinging about it. Like, like just stop a minute. Can you imagine what the soldiers were thinking about you? Yeah. (laughs) Regardless of whether you've seen elephants or not. Yeah. 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 Well, they're dangerous. Soldiers are dangerous. Elephants are too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, soldiers versus wildlife. That was was one of my last flights um, was was taking out a soldier that had been trampled. Um, Oh, you mentioned it before. Yeah. yeah. I think we did that in the... um, in the patrons bit, didn't we? The icebreaker. Oh, yeah. Did he or she survive? Yes, he did, yeah. yeah. Nearly had his arm torn off, but, um, but yeah, he was... Yeah, challenging flight, but it, that that's your really your biggest risk out there, and heat stroke. Um, mm. But it was... No, it was a great time, and Africa is incredible. I get really strange feeling of being at home when I'm in Africa in a in a way I cannot describe I mean I am actually quarter Moroccan but that has I know that that has absolutely nothing to do with it but well we're all African we're all like our gene and some people some people do have the theory that because we are you know genetically you know that's why we get this feeling I I 100% believe it like we can I mean people I don't know if you're religious but like religious people who think otherwise Mm. I am of the wholehearted belief like we there is a connection to that part of the world Mm. that everybody has because our our genes that's where we're all that's where we're all from well I just I just love it and I every time I go I just there's just this quiet contentment that I feel when I go there and which I find very difficult to I have found more difficult to find back here even though I absolutely love being in the UK and I love coming back to the UK do you not get the same do you think it's maybe something to do with I don't know how often you get into mountain regions and stuff like that do you think Mm. it's maybe something to do with outdoors and lack of uh, residual noise that you're getting it from like do you have you ever been up to Glencoe or the beacons or not the beacons because there's people Kenya not so much because Kenya is all when I go it's all kind of hustle and bustle up in Nanuki and and yes you do get out into the into the bush but that's not the majority of my stay um I do know what you mean though about being in nature and actually I was thinking about this only last night about that there were there was a little bit of work I was trying to do was trying to sort of identify some uh feelings of when you're when are you most content like when do you get this feeling of pure joy and and serenity and and all this kind of thing every single time uh, those feelings I get are when you get into the most beautiful parts of nature. It doesn't even have to be the most beautiful place, but something about the way it's presenting itself in nature is just wonderful. And you get into these, you see this amazing view or it's a little bit frosty or the light's just catching it just right. And you, it just gives you this inner feeling of just utter bliss. It's amazing. Hmm. But it's always in nature that I get that. And some people get it in cities or around amazing architecture or and but not for me. I it's no. one of the reasons I'm getting a dog. Oh yeah, a dog, yeah. Yeah. To force myself 
to get out. We were watching, uh, me and the missus were watching I'm a Celeb last night. And back to the point That's of relaxation, right? I'd be grudging. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, I take the mic about making me watch this bloody thing, but immediately yeah. I'm yeah. laughing at it because yeah. it is amusing. Yeah. But I, we were talking last night. I said, I'd love to go. I, I would do that. I would love to go and do that. Um, and I was saying, like, I'm a celeb, get me out of here. But the one point, I'm not a celebrity, and she was quick to point that out. <laughs> but two, when I thought about it, I thought it's not, and we discussed it, it's not, it's not actually about that. I would no. go, and, fuck the cameras. Mm-hmm. I would go and do it because it's two weeks mm. of isolation. Yeah. I wouldn't even need the other people. Yeah. Like, two weeks of isolation, and you're in the jungle. I yeah. love the jungle. Yeah. I mean, that is not the jungle what they're doing. No. Like, it's not, but I love the jungle. Yeah. But two weeks of doing that. Weirdo. What? Have you been done the jungle? <laughs> no. no. Oh my so. god. <laughs> Honest to God, Hannah. Yeah. It is incredible. Yeah. Like I went out I went out to the jungle in Uganda. Yeah. Military. But we had some time there, some downtime in and out of the mm. jungle. And uh, I have actually been to Rwanda up into okay, yeah. Volcanoes oh National god, Park. Just in the and I went just to see the gorillas actually. It's so there. good. Oh did you? Yeah. It was on I'm not joking, it was the best experience I've ever had in my life. And I did two, I was actually on my way back from Kenya and I was adamant I wanted to go and do this trip. And so I set the, I set the whole thing up. I followed somebody else's itinerary that they'd already done and, and proven and said to the rest of my unit, right, I'm organizing this thing. Who wants to come? No one, not a single person wanted to come with me. To go and see gorillas? To go and see the Why gorillas. Not? I, I've no, they, we they were at the pay? end of a six month tour and I think people just wanted to get home, and I right, bought okay, two. Yeah. I bought so it would have extended it, would it? it? Yeah, by like four days. Oh, okay. Yeah, basically, I flew back from Kenya via <coughs> Rwanda, and um, and I knew I wanted to do it in Rwanda because <clears throat> actually, my war studies paper in Sandhurst had been about the UN involvement in the Rwandan genocide, and and so it was already a an area of history that I was quite fascinated by and I knew more about and I I just really wanted to go there I, I've got a lot of respect for the country and, and, and it is the most stunning place um, and I bought two treks on consecutive days and yeah went up into the mountains and you know you trek for four or five hours to go and find them and, and then you get one hour literally when you find them the clock starts and so when you find them, get an hour. How close yeah. to them did you get? Closer than you are to me now. No way. Yes way. It was. It was. Are they used quite to people? Unbelievable. Well, so there's basically ten. There were ten families. I don't know if I'd want to be that close. Well, oh there wasn't. God. It wasn't planned. <laughs> it wasn't planned. It's supposed to be seven meters <clears throat> for disease control, but the first day we found oh, we're what? them. We're what? A meter and a half away. Yeah. From each other now. Yeah. And they were... One of them touched me. Oh, my God. And so we... The first day, they were all in, like... It depends what when you find them. depends on what part of their daily routine they're in. They're either eating their way through the forest or they're sleeping. And the first day, um, we found them when they were sleeping. And they were in this undergrowth. And so we couldn't see them at all unless we were closer and we kind of went we had to like crawl in under this little canopy and and then the whole family's in there including a couple of silverbacks 
and the big the big silverback who was the you know clearly the head of the family was called Charles and he was like flat out having a snooze and there was this mother and a little baby and the baby was mucking about next to him like any little two-year-old and the mum was playing with him. sleeping dad. Yeah and at one point he'd sort of bumped into dad <clears throat> and this arm which was like a tree trunk like reached out and poked him and this baby like sat dead still like sorry dad and until his dad stopped looking at him and then like any typical two-year-old like started mucking about again and it was like watching i was going to say what the similarity is like the humans oh my god it it was amazing it was amazing and (laughs) and um but so then you're in a relatively small group like eight people i think and so we were observing all of this and everyone had their cameras um and so I turned around towards other people to get them to take a photograph of me with the gorillas basically just behind me. And as I was, as I turned to them, I saw all their eyes just widen and, and look up at something that was higher than me and behind me. And I sort of carefully looked around over my shoulder and Charles, the silverback, has got up and he's now basically up here behind my shoulder on the tree no no I stood up behind me oh my god and um the guides there being like stay very still just don't do anything don't look just look down stay very still <laughs> but it was just it was just amazing because it was all very calm but it was just the acknowledgement that you're there with their permission you're in their world yeah and so it takes them, I was talking to the guide about it, it takes them about two, two and a half years to acclimatise a family to human presence and just going just daily. And that's why you only spend an hour because you don't intrude too much. Um, the second day we went, they were in like eating mode and they were sort of, we found them, it was a different family. Were you apprehensive about going back the second day? No. No. No, not at all. I couldn't wait. So you didn't feel threatened at all in that first day? No. Interesting. They give you... If they hadn't wanted us to be there, you'd have known about <laughs> it very early. And they say, if you don't... Like, if they don't want us to be there, there's nothing we can do about it. The rangers who would have found... that the, Basically, the rangers go up very early in the morning, find the nest where they slept the night, night before, and then they... Track. track them th- basically through this trail of devastation until they find them so at the point where you leave at seven o'clock in the morning the rangers haven't necessarily found them by that stage but then they radio you on and and the the two parties meet up um so the rangers will know if they're not in the mood but the second day we found them and they were eating their way up through the forest and um we were it was on a hill and they were gradually sort of moving up the hill. And as we were moving up, we noticed that there was a little juvenile that was climbing down a tree who had almost got left behind. And so us typical tourists were like, oh my God, look at the baby. And we all just, <laughs> we all just like the cameras come out. We're all looking up at this tree and I was filming it on my phone. And 
in hindsight, all you can hear in the background is the guide saying, he's coming, he's coming, come this way, please, come this way, please. But we are completely and utterly oblivious to oh, him. No. We're just looking up the tree. And then all of a sudden, this silverback comes absolutely flying down the mountain in full-on charge. And at the last minute, just kind of, like, we all scarper. And at the last minute, he just swerves away and just stands there. It was a oh, huge show of force. Like, you are between me and my family get out of here oh my god and <laughs> the guide's panicking like but in a as calm a way as he possibly can because he's got these very disobedient tourists who are completely oblivious to all of his instructions um but it was just so we so off we went um followed them up <laughs> there and then at one point we need we ended up higher up the mountain than, than they did and we needed to get back down because the hour was up. We couldn't go anywhere until they'd come up past us because they were we, they were in the way. But basically, the entire family walked up this track, which we were sat on, and walked straight past us. The entire family, and it was it was one of those moments where you, I was filming it, but I, I actually put my phone down so that you could just take it all in because it was one of those I was like I don't want to watch this through a screen I need to actually you just need to put the phone down like be present and take and just absorb it because it was the most unreal experience to be around them amazing because they don't look at you they they observe you they they look at you in a way that is like no other animal what do you mean? They they study you. Whereas an animal will, you know, like a horse, for example, is is looking at you and observing what you're doing. Because you're a threat potentially. Yeah. Like okay. Yeah. Like you, like a gorilla will look at you, and they're it's like they're reading you. Inquisitive about you. Yeah, and just they're understanding you in a way that other animals don't do. And the only other time I've seen that was. Um, with a chimpanzee in a zoo unbelievable apps i couldn't recommend it as an experience couldn't recommend it highly enough and then on my third day in rwanda came back down from volcanoes national park back down to kigali <coughs> and i went to the genocide museum um which you in my humble opinion you shouldn't go to rwanda without going to see that because it's beautifully done like it's not designed to be gory or, you know, just shock factor stuff. But it explains just... I mean, I, I'd already read all of what sort of went on and there's some fantastic books about it, including the the, the um, French-Canadian who was heading up the UN um, coalition there and he was a general... Uh, Romeo Dallaire and he wrote a book called um, Shake Hands with the Devil and it's basically about the entire I've heard of this yeah it's fantastic and it's basically about the entire operation there and how they knew in so in 1994 you know basically they they knew what was about to happen they knew that where all the weapons caches were they knew that they had to go and seize these weapons caches because something big was about to kick off, but they didn't have the UN mandate to do it. And he kept applying to Kofi Annan to say, 
something massive is about to happen here. We need to have the a, a different mandate to be able to basically intercept this. And Kofi Annan said no. And so they couldn't, they didn't have the authority to basically, um, the, the, the only time they could intervene was if there was a, if they were first fired upon and only if UN forces were fired upon, not if Rwandans were being attacked. So, yeah, and, and clearly it had a massive effect on him. He didn't write the book for several years um, because he was utterly traumatised by the whole thing. And um, But it's a, it's a real insight into UN operations in very difficult circumstances. I'll have to have a look at that, yeah. Um, I'll have to try and find a guest for that as well, actually. So I, um, we need to wrap this up in a minute. Um, we're going to some lunch, but uh, yeah, I Chris Cox in here, who who I learned a huge amount from about uh, Rhodesia. Mm. Uh, Chris Cox is he, he was a Rhodesian light infantry, I think, but he's now sort of the un, un, unofficial historian of the whole episode. He lives mm. in the UK now, uh, and but like this is the thing with Africa. I mean, fascinating mm. in terms of uh, we were just talking about the wildlife and. Mm the environment and beautiful but also the history of it mm. just how well, there's like nowhere else on earth seems like it from from a societal perspective no. to to the the to um well anything anything nothing about it is normal no. and and you know each quarter of it is our completely normal. different yeah. our normal yeah. our normal yeah and anyway. it's yeah i i just loved it i loved africa Kenya, Rwanda, um, I, I, there are so many more places I would love to go, but they can be added to the bucket list. <laughs> Been a pleasure. Let's go and get some lunch. Uh, hopefully, yeah, hopefully Dave will join us, Kate will join us, and um, thank you for coming back. Really glad we did no, it again. No, thanks for having me back. Yeah, yeah really enjoyed and, it. And uh, fascinating, interesting, good luck with everything. Thank you very Let's much. Let's get some food. Thank you. <laughs> No, hang on a minute. HannahShergold.com. HannahShergold.com. Or um, I've just spent rather a lot of time updating my Instagram, which is if you just put in Hannah Shergold Art and TikTok, actually. Bane of my good life. Good move. Good move. I know, but Very I feel move. like I'm whoring myself out to the gods of social media. It's just, you know. Now, as long but, as you're right with China, spy in yeah. on your account, that's fine. So, TikTok, yeah, TikTok. TikTok is the place to be. Hannah Shergold Art. And soon to be um, collaborating with. Doug the dog, my new studio assistant, also has an Instagram account. As of January. Yeah. Yeah, January. As of January. Yeah, yeah. He's currently three weeks old. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. Right. <laughs> Thanks you. We are. Thank you, Anna. That's it. If you enjoyed this episode, why not become a H Hour patron? H Hour patrons get exclusive access to premium content there are private interviews with previous guests and with this guest that nobody will see except for the hr patrons so before this podcast was recorded i recorded an exclusive q a a shorter interview structured around eight questions all the questions were chosen by patrons beforehand and that interview is online now for patrons that happens every time patrons also get access to all of the episodes before anyone else they get advanced viewing of the episodes and you also get other perks and bonuses all of the information is on charliecharlie1.com just hit the menu item become a patron it'll show you everything there including access to the hr discord community and private 
patron only channels on there so go to charliecharlie1.com and hit the menu item become a patron easy peasy thank you for being a supporter subscribe to the channel and i will catch you on the next episode thank you